I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 26th. Coming up, we speak with Dr. Robert Pincus about new research showing how much climate warming has already been baked in since the start of the Industrial Age. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Around 120,000 people in the United States are on the waiting list for an organ transplant. Another name is added to the waiting list every 20 minutes. 22 people die every day while waiting. One solution is xenotransplantation, the transplantation of non-human organs to humans. Pigs are the animals of choice for organ transplant in humans for three reasons. First, the size and physiology of their organs are similar to humans. Second, it's relatively easy to make genetic modifications in pigs. And third, pigs have large litters and short reproductive cycles. What's more, xenotransplantation can sometimes overcome major challenges. For instance, transplantation between species typically creates an even more serious rejection problem than transplantation between humans, which is bad enough. Genetic modification to the rescue. A breed of pigs has been genetically engineered, lacking the enzymes that cause the rejection issues. But there's a final problem with xenotransplantation to consider. It's the potential transmission of porcine microorganisms that might induce a disease called zoonosis in human recipients. Pigs carry many microorganisms, including viruses, that could be transmitted by transplanting their organs. One hepatitis virus from pigs is known to infect humans, but the risk from the other viruses is unknown. It is theoretically possible to treat pig tissues to inactivate or reduce transmission of these porcine viruses, but this is impossible when the virus is integrated into the pig's genome, as is in the case with porcine endogenous retroviruses, known as PERVs. Endogenous retroviruses, meaning viruses that live inside our cells, occur in all mammals, including humans. When a PERV-infected male or female pig mates, the PERV can be passed to every cell in the offspring, as the PERV DNA is copied during each round of cell division. And that means a human getting a heart from a PERV pig could end up with the virus. But even here, there is hope. Recently, a group of scientists in China, Denmark, and the U.S., found a way to use the new genome editing system CRISPR to inactivate the enzymes that copy PERVs in egg cells. Using in vitro fertilization, they implanted the PERV-free embryos in females lacking the viruses. The resulting piglets are currently being tested to monitor the effects of PERV inactivation and gene editing as they age and mature. So we might be getting closer to a germ-free, low-rejection way to make organs transplant into humans through pigs. And this might finally mean that people on the waiting list for life-saving organs can get one in time to save their lives. This work was published last week in the journal Science. If humans take long journeys in space, whether to Mars or extended stays on the space station, they are subject to a unique environment that may affect their sensitivity to illnesses as well as medications. For instance, once they're in outer space, disease-causing microbes are more resistant to antibiotics. 
The long-term space tra- with long-term space travel in mind, University of Colorado Boulder scientists and their colleagues decided to learn more about how bacteria behave differently in space and why it takes higher concentrations of antibiotics to kill them. Their study showed that bacterial cells treated with a common antibiotic in a near weightlessness of the International Space Station responded with some clever shape-shifting that likely helped them survive. In the space station experiment, a culture of common E. coli bacteria was treated with several different concentrations of an antibiotic. The response of the bacteria included a 13-fold increase in cell numbers and a 73% reduction in cell volume size compared to an Earth control group. And it turns out all these changes were helping the E. coli survive. For instance, because there are no gravity-driven forces in space, such as buoyancy and sedimentation, the only way the bacteria on the space station can ingest nutrients or drugs is through natural diffusion. So, the decrease of the bacteria's cell surface in space decreases the amount of antibiotic ingested by the bacteria. The new study also showed that in the presence of the antibiotics, the bacterial cell wall and the membrane became thicker, like likely protecting the bacteria even more than the antibiotic. The bacteria grown in space also tended to form in clumps, effectively creating an outer shell of cells protecting the inner cells from the antibiotics. The researchers say all these factors indicate drug resistance mechanisms that are not seen in similar tests of E. coli conducted here on Earth. This information not only might help scientists develop antibiotics that protect the health of astronauts, but also has applications for those of us who stay on our planet. Such studies can help scientists learn more about cell and organism biochemical changes that may be masked by gravity on Earth. The clumping of the bacterial cells may be related to biofilm formation. Examples of biofilms on Earth include the scum on vinyl shower curtains, dental plaque, and even collections of bacteria that can adhere to silicon in medical devices such as catheters. Over the last eight years, the Kepler spacecraft has discovered a dizzying number of planets outside of our solar system. Thousands, in fact. Throughout this eight years of discovery, students at the University of Colorado Boulder have played a role in the operation of the Kepler spacecraft. If you're interested in learning more about how students have helped with one of the great space missions of the last decade, go next Wednesday to the public lecture at CU's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, also known as LASP. That Wednesday, October 4th public lecture begins at 7.30 in the evening. Bill Posell, the director of LASP's Missions, Operations, and Data Systems, will speak about the CU student program that has been part of the Kepler mission since launch. For more details, go to lasps.colorado.edu and click on Events and Seminars. You're tuned in to KGNU's science show, How on Earth. I'm Alejandro Soto. Much of current climate science research focuses on understanding how the climate is changing and what type of climate we will have in the near future. But to understand where the climate is going, we need to understand where the climate has been. It is especially important to understand how the climate has responded to the rise of the modern industrial world, which has emitted greenhouse gases that warm the climate. Because many of these gases will last for a long time in the atmosphere, 
some of this warming has already been set in motion and will happen regardless of future greenhouse gas emissions. This change is known as committed warming. Determining how much committed warming has occurred in the climate is important to understand the, the future path of our climate. Today, we speak with Dr. Robert Pincus, a co-author of a new study that provides an estimate of committed warming using a global database of surface temperatures. Dr. Pincus is a research scientist at the Earth System Research Laboratory at the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, which most of us know as NOAA. Welcome. Today we have uh, Dr. Robert Pincus to speak about some of his recent uh, research. He published a paper with Thorsten Maritzen titled Committed Warming Inferred from Observations. Welcome, Dr. Pincus. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Well, excellent. So the, the first thing I need to jump out and ask is your, your paper is titled Committed Warming Inferred from Observations. What is committed warming? So committed warming is how warm we expect the planet to be if we turn out the lights today. So that is if we stop, we as a society, stop emitting greenhouse gases and all other pollutants. If we stop modifying the composition of the atmosphere. Um, not that we expect the planet to keep warming because the, the oceans, the temperature of the oceans hasn't, haven't caught up to the, uh, the forcing, as we call it, that we've been giving it um, to the push to the climate system. So it's sort of like the system has built up a battery, and even if we shut things off, we need to let the battery drain out. Right, or, or, or maybe the better way to think about it is the system has momentum, and, uh, and it's going to coast to a stop and not just stop immediately. And the and stop, in this case, means on its warming tra trajectory. So how do you go about determining the amount of committed warming? Well, people have been looking at this problem for a long time. It's an interesting problem from a scientific point of view um, because it sort of emphasizes the role of momentum in the continuing warming of the Earth system. From a, a sort of a political science point of view, it's interesting because it sort of tells you a little bit how past actions affect future warming. So there's a there's a, an overtly sort of social dimension to the work too. In the past, what people have done is used expensive climate models. So complicated computer models that um, are related to the same models we use to predict the weather. In this case, they're used to predict the climate. Um, and what they do is just turn off emissions and see what happens. We were guided by a lot of that work. Um, but what we did was do something simpler. We looked at kind of past relationships between the changes that people have made to the atmosphere. Um, the imbalance at the top of the atmosphere um, in the energy exchange with the whole rest of the universe. And it's that, that imbalance that means that is the reason why we're warming. Um, and at the temperature and at the historical temperature change. And so the idea there is just looking at past behavior to infer future behavior. So we didn't use a complicated uh, climate model at all. We used something so simple enough that we could solve it with pencil and paper. So the imbalance you're talking about is the fact that we get energy from the sun, it comes into our planetary system, and it eventually gets re-radiated away. But if the atmosphere holds on to more of that energy, and therefore warms up, uh, that means we're re-radiating less than before. So is that the imbalance that you're, you were looking at? That's exactly right. And the way the planet will respond is that it will eventually, so the, the energy that we re-radiate is 
partly determined by how warm the planet is. And as the planet gets warmer, it re-radiates more energy to come back into balance. So what's happened is we've you know, basically put a blanket on the planet um, and the planet will get hot enough to sort of come back into balance with the rest of the universe. But that coming back into balance hasn't happened yet. And that's why they're still, as they say, warming in the pipeline, even if we stop pushing on the system today. So if you're looking at this imbalance at the top of the atmosphere, well, well, how do you do that? What kind of observations do we have that tells us about this energy at the top? The, you know, the best observations, fun, funnily enough, are not at the top of the atmosphere, but in the ocean. And um, the reason for that is that that imbalance has to, that energy has to be going somewhere. And the place that it goes in the climate system is the deep ocean. And so a lot of what we know, um, we know from people with uh, these beautiful uh, machines that live in the ocean called Argo floats that uh, drop down, uh, they used to drop down about 700 meters, or about 2,100 feet. Currently, most of them might understand drop down to about 2,000 meters. And they keep track of the temperature and the salt uh, as, as a function of uh, how far you are from the surface. And so we know how much, what we know about where the energy is going in the climate system comes primarily from these uh, autonomous floats that drop down for five days, come back up to the surface, and then call home with a cell phone or a satellite phone um, to tell scientists what the temperature and salinity has been. So the accuracy with which we know that number comes primarily from these uh, measurements in the ocean. But the oceans has currents, energy is being moved around. How do you guys separate sort of like daily, annual weather type, weather may not be the right word, but changes that are natural to the ocean, how do you separate that from the larger scale signal that you're looking for? So it's a, it's a perfectly good question. It's a very good question. The, um, there's a lot of these floats and they've been making measurements for a long time is sort of the short answer. Well, there's thousands of these floats throughout the oceans. They've learned enough to calibrate out what's sort of, you know, the, the regular operating day changes and so that you can see the larger decadal and century changes on top of it. Well, the, the floats haven't been in the water for that long, centuries. Um, and we're not looking at a trend, mind you. We're just looking at how much is the ocean warming over time. How much is the ocean warming? So we can infer that from these um, temperature profiles. Um, it's also true that there's in some ways a lot less, the oceans are less variable because the momentum of the ocean is so, so large. Um, so they're, they don't have sort of day-to-day -day weather in the same way that we do in the atmosphere. So you have this data from these Argo floats. So how do you connect it back to that imbalance? So roughly speaking, the only way that energy can the atmosphere doesn't store heat basically. Um, it's, although there's a lot of it, you know, on human scales compared to the whole climate system, the, the capacity to store heat of the atmosphere is quite low. And so we know from sort of physical reasoning that anywhere that the, that imbalance has to be expressed as, um, as energy flowing into the deep ocean. Um, so, so roughly speaking, we can connect the energy flowing into the ocean with the imbalance at the top of the atmosphere. I should say that there are satellite measurements at the top of the atmosphere that measure precisely this, this quantity, this imbalance, but they aren't able to sort of calibrate the satellites very well without extra information. And where they get that extra information is from these, from these uh, Argo floats. What you're doing is you're, you're developing this uh, measurement of the committed warming, sort of what we've already committed to by our actions and by what the what's been going on for the past couple hundred years 
you're making an estimate of that, but are you so, – so when global climate models do this, they often have to look at different scenarios to try to project out into the future. Uh, do you guys have to do the same thing, or is this, this process a little bit independent of scenario selection? Well, we, it, it is – so first of all, the whole idea of committed warming is different from um, when we talk about scenarios – for example, when the IPCC reports, where they're looking a scenario in that and that's case, sorry, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Yes, I'm sorry, I did just um, devolve into jargon there, right? So the the uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which which, as far as scientists are concerned, is is a, a an assessment of what we understand, a, a roughly objective assessment of what we understand. In order to project into the future, they ask social scientists to come up with likely futures, likely pathways for emissions. And when, when you hear people talking about scenarios, they normally mean something like that. What is the uh, emissions, what are emissions going to be like in future? In our case, we're talking about a much less realistic world, and that's a world in which all the emissions instantly cease. So hopefully that won't happen. I mean, that would be bad news because it would represent, you know, the only way that would happen would be a total breakdown of civilization. So it's a very, it's idealized, it's an idealized problem. Um, but we did play out different sort of aspects of the problem. And in this way, you might think of them as scenarios. Normally when people talk about stopping emissions or when this idea was first uh, approached, people said, well, we'll just... Um, the concentration of carbon dioxide and all the other greenhouse gases will stay the same. Uh, and then somebody noticed that if you stopped burning things, you'd also stop emitting uh, what we call aerosols. So these are small particles in the atmosphere. And uh, what they mostly tend to do, do is make the planet cooler because they reflect sunlight back to space. So they, um, so, so they make the planet cooler. So the warming historically has been a balance between the uh, greenhouse gases that have been emitted and the, and the aerosols which have cooled the planet. The aerosols will go away quite fast. They get rained out, basically. They get scavenged by precipitation of various kinds and they fall to the earth in a matter of weeks. The greenhouse gases, many of them will stick around for many millennia, carbon dioxide in particular. So first we said what happens if carbon dioxide stays the same and the answer is the planet warms, uh, the planet warms up. Then we said, what happens if the aerosols go away? And then the planet warms up a whole lot real quick uh, and, and, and then uh, continues to warm from the carbon dioxide. Then it turns out that some of the greenhouse gases don't last for thousands of years. Things like methane react with other gases. So they act as greenhouse gases today, but over the course of maybe a decade, the amount of methane in the atmosphere would go down. Um, and so we took that into account. And the other thing that we tried to do is take a look at the very long-term consequences, so many thousands of years, basically the time it takes the whole ocean to heat up, but a somewhat more human timescale is the end of the century. And we looked at what would happen at the end of the century. And the final thing we looked at was if um, the oceans suck up heat out of the atmosphere, they're getting warmer, but they're also absorbing carbon dioxide. And so if you stopped burning Today, the concentration of carbon dioxide would actually start to fall, and that would lead, of course, to less warming. And we played that one, that scenario or that idea out as well. And so I have to ask, going through all this analysis of the data and looking at um, a couple scenarios 
how much committed warming did you guys find? So it's a, uh, it depends a little bit on the scenario, but the, our, what we consider to be the most realistic, you should understand that this is a pretty idealized study, right? So if you, if you wanted a strong answer to this question, you would go back and, and probably use climate models again in a very calibrated way. But our back of the envelope says that we have about uh, 1.1 degrees Kelvin since pre-industrial. So that's about uh, three-tenths of a degree warmer than we than what we considered our, our present day, which was actually 2010, for sort of technical reasons when we had the data available. So three-tenths of a degree is uh, roughly half a degree Fahrenheit, more warmer than today. You say that, that that's an impressive number, but you also say it's idealized, so there's uncertainty attached to it. What do you hope to be able to do next with this sort of analysis? Is there is there an obvious next step in order to improve those estimates? Well, we uh, first of all, I should say that this idea of committed warming was a little bit of a side project for both Thorsten and I. Um, Thorsten is a longtime collaborator of mine. I, I really enjoy doing projects with him. He and I were sort of working through someone else's paper at one point a few years ago. We were trying to understand how someone had come up with a calculation. Uh, and that calculation was um, of what's called equilibrium climate sensitivity. So fancy, you know, elaborate jargon that basically means how warm we would expect the planet to get if we doubled the concentration of carbon dioxide from before industrialization. So this is a little bit of a sidelight. This committed warming is a little bit of a sidelight to, to that um, work that he and I are both involved in, as are many scientists in the Boulder area and around the world. So, but it sounds like, just like in your example, where this was a side project inspired by a paper, what we can hope is that other people get inspired by the work you do, and we can see what they'll produce, uh, what they'll build upon this research. No, absolutely true. I think the idea of committed warming is sort of twofold. One is that it's a, it's a simple problem. And um, normally, if you have a hard problem that you don't understand, like what's going to happen in the next 100 years, you look for a simpler problem that you can solve and build off of. The other is, I think there's something kind of pedagogical. It's a, it's a teaching moment, um, you could say. Because if you ask people what's going to happen if we stop emitting carbon dioxide, most people would tell you that it'll cool off to, to pre-industrial times relatively quickly. But that's not what would happen, in fact. What would happen is that the planet would continue to warm. So we have a sentence in this paper, you know, that talks about naive expectations, that if you stop pushing on the climate system, it'll get cooler. And I think it's useful to remind ourselves, useful as scientists, also, I guess, as citizens, to remind ourselves that our past actions have echoes into the future. Uh, yeah, I would just say that. Well, to uh, use your um, analogy from earlier, this is about the momentum in the system. And in the classic sort of uh, analogy, uh, this is a really big boat and it's going to be very hard and take a long time to slow it down and turn it around. Absolutely. And you provided a way of quantifying uh, how hard that's going to be, which is always useful for understanding the science, but also for those policymakers who want to take the science that we do and, and move forward with it. So a little bit apropos of that, you know, when we, um, we did this using observed relationships between, as I said, how warm the planet's gotten, how we've changed the composition of the atmosphere, and how much energy, it, by how much the climate system is out of balance with the rest of the universe. 
we were able to um, infer this amount of committed warming based on things that we've been able to observe in the past. It turns out that the that the amount of warming that we predict, or the the amount of warming that we that we compute, is in line with estimates that people have made using complicated climate models. And so what that means to me is that we understand this, this problem. It's an idealized problem, but we understand it pretty well. It's evidence that even if there were no big climate surprises, this is the amount of warming that would is likely to occur. I should also say that we tried to do this by taking into account all the uncertainties that we could. And in a simple uh, framework like ours, which really just has a handful of numbers, we're able to, to do this in a quite a thorough way. So you can't sort of um, take away the fact that the framework itself introduces an uncertainty but within the within the framework of of within that framework we can account for all these uncertainties and so we were able to say for example at what point do we hit a 50 50 chance of breaking the one and a half degree centigrade target that was set in paris at what point are we committed to warming of one and a half degrees and the answer turned out to be that if you burned fossil fuels at the rates we're doing today we have until about 2053 I should just say that saying that we would burn fossil fuels until 2053 is already, at current rates, until 2053 is already optimistic, given that emissions have historically increased year after year after year. And that's a little, you know, you're committed to one and a half degrees if you turn off all the lights in 2053. So we didn't try to do a sort of a cumulative emission budget, that is how much carbon could we burn until we have exceeded um, one and a half degrees, but that's the kind of work I expect other people to do. Interesting. This is a fascinating topic, a great reminder of uh, the consequences that uh, our industrial age have built up and the complexity that we have to deal with when uh, tackling uh, our understanding of the climate. Dr. Robert Pincus, I appreciate your time and uh, thanks for the work you did. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Alejandro Soto and that was Dr. Robert Pincus from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration talking to us about recent research into committed warming in the global climate. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Alejandro Soto. This week's show is produced by Alejandro Soto and engineered by me. Additional contributions from Beth Bennett and Joe Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Afrocubism. Visit our website, howonearthradio.org, to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Shelley Schlender.